Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson. I'm your host, Ben Carson. And, you know, there are a couple of cases in front of the Supreme Court uh, in this session that deal with big tech censorship and free speech and the extent that the government has been involved in curtailing free speech. And that's something that we should all be worried about today. We're going to talk about some of these cases of government censorship with the founder and CEO of the Center for American Liberty, founder and managing partner of the Dillon Law Group, a passionate advocate for the First Amendment, and I'm told by a little birdie, also an accomplished knitter. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Harmeet Dillon, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Dr. Carson. I'm admitting that I did the sweater that I'm wearing today. All right. There's a lot of issues to cover here, but uh, one of the most interesting things about the uh, Missouri versus Biden, I think it's refiled as uh, Murthy versus Missouri, is we got an in-depth look at the actions of the government. Can you break down the facts of that case for our audience? Well, sure. At a high point, uh, Missouri versus Biden was the first case involving the government, in this case, numerous attorneys general, suing the big tech companies for censoring speech online. But it was uh, a case that sits on the shoulders of many other cases, including one that we filed at the Center for American Liberty, um, O'Hanley versus Padilla, and there were prior cases. So this practice of censorship, we now know from public records requests and FOIA requests and and discovery that's been conducted at various levels, dates back at least to the middle of the Trump administration. And in O'Hanley versus Padilla, we saw it in the election context in California. That case is also now sitting at the United States Supreme Court waiting for a a ruling on certiorari. And I think the court's going to really take Missouri versus Biden as the landmark case to look at whether it recognizes a claim of censorship where the censorship is by proxy. And so um, stepping back for a minute, of course, the First Amendment requires the government to not be in the censorship business with very few exceptions. Um, And so, you know, it's an expansive rule and the government from every level, from the top of the federal government, all the way down to your local school board. It is such an important principle of the First Amendment that it is very well established and everybody knows this. And yet the impulse of powerful people is often to censor their critics and use uh, what I would call violence, uh, You know, use police power, use the force of the state to accomplish its ends. And humorless bureaucrats are, uh, you know, very apt to try to find ways to do this. And so, bureaucrats thought they could get around the prohibition of the First Amendment on censorship by using proxies to do that. And so now we don't know the full extent of how and why and where, but there were 
hearings in Congress just this past week on the censorship industrial complex and how far back it goes. But in this particular case, we have physicians whose speech about the COVID vaccines efficacy and uh, the lockdown policies uh, and other you know affiliated individuals, they were censored by government order through third party so-called nonprofits at universities and other institutions that government officials, CISA is one, but the FBI, the White House and others gave orders to these third parties saying, we'd like the speech of these doctors to be taken down. And that's what happened. The social media companies, which by the way, are not only closely regulated by the government just by virtue of being corporations, but were also under threat of additional regulation involving their very free speech rights, as well as their immunity from liability if they didn't comply. And so that are, those are some of the very interesting facts that make up the background of this case. Yeah, I think we heard a lot about uh, some of the things they tried to do with uh, Dr. Banacharya and Kaldoff, but uh, we, we didn't hear a lot about their suppression of speech about election integrity. Right. But, but they were involved in that too, were they not? Absolutely. So in the case that I brought, and I know those facts very intimately, basically after the 2020 election, there was a push by the same bureaucrats and regulators using the same third party, uh, so-called independent uh, monitors of disinformation and truthfulness on the internet that suppressed the speech of thousands of Americans uh, in uh, response to their criticism of how the 2020 election was run. In the case of our client, Rogan O'Hanley, an attorney, Rogan is a popular social media influencer, and he put up, I think, a total of four tweets that were critical of the election. The, the one was simply an image of the White House surrounded by barbed wire. Um, making an ironic or satirical comment about how Joe Biden got the most votes ever. Another was calling for an audit of the California election in 2020. And as a result of that, within a very short time period, he was removed from Twitter altogether. No appeal process, no notification, and frankly, nothing inaccurate that he said. And so he, I know from suing Twitter and other instances, for example, one of my first clients who sued Twitter was a feminist named Megan Murphy, who sued them for deplatforming her for using so-called misgendering in a, in a political context. There was no recourse for Megan. She was simply removed from the internet, and this is years before the 2020 election. And so I know that when you sue in California and when you sue, which is that's where these social media companies are all based, they basically will try to shut you into arbitration and then you have no discovery rights, and then the case is dismissed under Communications Decency Act Section 230, which is a license that Congress gave these social media companies back in 1996 and under Newt Gingrich to do whatever they want. Um, now, this was to protect a nascent burgeoning industry in 1996. They needed protection from liability for making editorial choices about pornography and inappropriate content. This has now become a monster, which has effectively allowed these social media companies to have contracts with their users called terms of service and then ignore them. And then the social media users can basically never sue. So that's why Missouri versus Biden was so important because the attorneys general were suing on behalf of their citizens saying their citizens had a right to see what's going on on the internet without the filtration of government censorship and that's a very powerful statement, and I'm just so thrilled to see uh, attorneys general stepping up for those free speech rights. Well, what uh, what exactly is the Barrington Declaration? Uh, the Great Barrington Declaration uh, involved a number of physicians and experts on uh, you know the sort of the lockdown issues on best policies and practices, and you know they were opposed. And I'm not an expert on this issue, I think, read it at a high level. They were opposed to the use of force, basically government mandates and government uh, requirements to push the novel COVID vaccines. And also the disastrous lockdowns. I mean, I think I went to court more than any other lawyer in America to challenge governors locking down our children, our beaches, our businesses, our ability to 
go from county to county here in California. Um, and so we now are just suffering the brunt of that. But these doctors basically and other public health experts came together and formulated some first principles. And this was viewed as so dangerous to the, I'm going to just assume, pharma industry as well as government control that governors and others, both, by the way, both Republican and Democrat governors and certainly our federal government um, and Dr. Fauci uh, wanted to be wielding this authoritarian power that they had to suppress and censor that speech and make sure these doctors were not only not heard, but ridiculed and humiliated by their so-called peers in the industry and shut down. So that's what yeah. happened to these doctors. Well, it was, it was fascinating to me to to watch the way they tried to denigrate the whole concept of natural immunity, which we've known about for hundreds of years <laughs> since the Civil War. And all of a sudden, natural immunity, what's that? No, no. And if you get it, it's only for a few weeks. Just total craziness. And, and I, I can't believe that they actually believe that stuff. But uh, that's what we were into. We still are, as you know. I mean, even to this day, uh, people will mock you so-called educated, intelligent people for having a differing view about the necessity and efficacy of vaccines for people who are not at high risk without discussing in any way the massive side effects we have seen. Uh, clots, um, cardio issues, um, you know you know better than me, but it's it's actually been one of the most damaging episodes in world history to degrade and decrease people's confidence in the medical profession. Well, particularly, uh, you know, when it came to children and COVID mm-hmm. vaccines, you know, we know that the, the risk of death or serious harm from COVID in a child is 0.025%. That's approaching zero. We have no idea what the long-term risk of developing spike proteins are. In a, but the interesting thing to me, and this is fascinating, uh, only about 13% of American parents had their children vaccinated. So it seems to me that maybe they're a lot smarter than you think <laughs> the people, and that was very encouraging to me. But uh, what did the what did the government decide to label as misinformation? Well, the government decided to label anything challenging the mass vaccination mandates, as well as anything challenging the efficacy of lockdowns as misinformation. Um, there was a party line coming out of, you know, NIH and Fauci and et al., as well as joined by a chorus of health officials who are generally obscure. And in many cases, like the infamous case of Dr. Barbara Ferrer in Los Angeles County, not even physicians. So non-physician had absolute authority over 10 million Americans living in Los Angeles County who weren't allowed to go to the beach, weren't allowed to you know, socialize with each other, weren't allowed to send their children to school and so forth with these disastrous results. So anything challenging the efficacy of these, we now know, totally wrong government mandates was viewed as disinformation, misinformation, dangerous, and it was shut down from so-called you know, organic spreading on the internet. And uh, I'm on one of those government lists, uh, you know, various discovery requests have shown anybody with a large reach who retweeted and pushed questions about these government policies uh, put you on an enemies list that our government used to um, suppress, artificially suppress our reach by using these proxies at Stanford and you know these other institutions that were used as uh, middlemen to convey these censorship orders to the uh, to the social media companies. Well, you know, I've known Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins personally for decades. And uh, they used to be people of great integrity. Um, what do you think happened to them? Did they just get caught up in a big government bureaucracy? Or Well, again, I think you might know better, but we have seen many highly intelligent, successful people go to D.C. and become corrupted by the cocktail parties and the you know social pressure or social contagion, if you will, in a way, um, there in D.C. And then on top of that, these these guys are career bureaucrats. So uh, people raised questions about Fauci's decision making and judgment dating back to the AIDS era when he had uh, you know significant influence over government policy back then. And according to many 
people suffering from that disease made decisions that were adverse to stopping the spread of it rapidly. And so um, any of us who've had medical issues have unfortunately had to encounter occasionally some doctor who has a God complex and thinks they know better than uh, you and better than others. And I think we saw this writ large with once obscure and suddenly important public health and public policy experts for once in their lives, they were the most important and so-called learned people in the room. They were given undue power. They wielded it in a authoritarian manner and they were aided by um, gatekeepers, intellectual gatekeepers of our society who viewed themselves as better than the people asking the questions. And you have to view this, of course, it's had very real world impacts on thousands or tens of thousands of Americans, hundreds of thousands who died due to the early policies of shepherding people into nursing homes, also questioned by many of us critics. But beyond what happened to the individuals whose health is affected, that taste of power and that willingness by Dr. Carson, by so many tens of millions of our fellow citizens, just based on some letters after somebody's name, uh, is shocking. And you just you just know that if we have this censorship regime set up and this unquestioning obeisance to the government and its mandates, this could happen again with much worse consequences. So that's what keeps me up at night as a First Amendment lawyer and a civil libertarian, how easily my fellow men and women so ra rapidly bent the knee to these autocrats who are totally wrong in many instances. Yeah, well, I, I hope we learned a lesson from it. It was interesting, about a couple of months ago, you remember they were saying, we got a new strain of COVID coming and we may have to start doing some things. And it was so soundly rejected by everybody. They just shut up after a couple of weeks. But, but, I, but, you know, there was some new disease happening in China right now. Uh, yeah. All we have to see, and look, I mean, savvy people are beginning to realize how public opinion is being manipulated online. I don't know if those images coming out of China ever were real or are real today, but right. that is uh, well-timed for an election in 2024. And I think uh, I personally have my antenna up for um, alertness and awareness because the, the biggest change that we've had in our election laws in my lifetime in America has been as a result of COVID. COVID was used as an excuse to a one-way mm -hmm. ratchet towards uh, mail balloting throughout the United States, not coupled with a good handle on who's on the voter rolls, resulting yeah. in millions of duplicate and otherwise fake or unverified ballots sloshing around um, the mails. And this yeah. is, I think, permanently degraded American confidence in the integrity of our elections as well. Absolutely. It's fascinating that the French banned uh, mail-in balloting in 1975. <laughs> they said there was just too much cheating and there was no way to control it. And it's interesting Absolutely. that uh, Argentina, you know, decided that they would go in a different direction also. And uh, all of a sudden, look at the change that occurred in the government there. So That's right. That's right. There was a 2016 election in the Philippines of using um, some of the same machines that have been the subject of so much controversy in our country. And again, the results were questioned there and they've been, you know, the result of ongoing controversy in that country. Well, we're going to come back in one minute. Stay with us. We're going to ask Harmeet Dillon a little bit about Rob Flaherty and his emails and what they showed. We'll be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with more common sense. You know, as I always say, common sense is not very common. But uh, we have a commonsensical guest today, Harmeet Dillon. And uh, Harmeet, let me just ask you about Rob Flaherty and his emails. Uh, What did they tell us about the FBI and some other things? Well, you know, the the course of this whole um, litigation and investigation showed that there were multiple government agencies involved in the censorship regime. And so, you know, one of the interesting opinions in this first wave of, um, of rulings out of Missouri versus Biden involved looking at all these different uh, emails that have been turned up in the discovery process or in public records requests and showing how, you know, orders would go from one government agency to another uh, over all of these, uh, you know, different, there was like, it was like this whole portal that was set up and, you know, government officials could submit their requests and they would, you know, have people who were monitoring the internet. And then that's how it was used to get to these social media companies. And so, you know, frankly, that it's so voluminous uh, that, um, you know, it was actually quite shocking. And so Rob Flaherty was, uh, you know, one of the people whose emails was uh, turned up in that whole endeavor. Well, what about the Twitter files? what uh, what was the, what were the major things that were found out through the Twitter files? Well, gosh, that could be something you go on for hours about. Um, I've uh, had the pleasure to represent uh, Michael Schellenberger, one of the independent journalists who's been critical to exposing what went on there. Matt Taibbi is another one who uh, television viewers would be familiar with, and you know both of them testified in Congress just this past week over these issues. So, what was a really revolutionary development in our whole endeavor by lawyers to uncover what happened in recent years with censorship was the change of ownership of Twitter. So Elon Musk is, uh, you know, the CEO and owner of, uh, not the CEO anymore, rather, but the owner of, uh, of Twitter, the majority owner of Twitter. And he took a personal decision as a person, I think, interested in the truth and in humanity in uncovering what happened. So what when he became the new owner of Twitter, um, he actually turned over massive amounts of the information in the files, government requests and censorship requests from the government's proxies to these independent journalists and said, here, have at it, look through it and report to the world what you found. And so that's how a lot of this information was uncovered. Um, in fact, we actually learned, and I think what precipitated the change of ownership at Twitter was actually this very censorship regime, because I remember the lawsuit that I did, you may recall I mentioned earlier, O'Hanley versus Padilla. It effectively, we became aware of the censorship because the general counsel of Twitter, Vijay Agade, bragged about it on a podcast after the 2020 election. She talked about how we, quote unquote, worked with the government to take down disinformation online about the election in that case. And so that led to Public Records Act requests by Judicial Watch that turned up a lot of the information we used for our lawsuit that showed um, who was being censored. And we you know, now learned through all of these other efforts in the Twitter files, a great and vast deal more about the number of different government agencies that were involved in this censorship regime. Now. The court's initial ruling in this case um, made a distinction between agencies that, you know, might have put in a request versus agencies or requests that were paired with police power. Like, hey, you have a wonderful social media company out there. Uh, sure, it would be a shame if we were to decide to censor you more or take away your immunity under Communications Decency Act Section 230. And so the court tried to make distinctions between requests and then requests coupled with implicit or explicit threats of powerful responses or censorship or, or discrimination or uh, regulation by the government. And so 
Where that's going to end up at the Supreme Court is going to be interesting because um, in my case, the Ninth Circuit rejected our claim and said, oh, the government asked things to be censored. So what? They used a proxy. They're home free. Whereas I think a much more nuanced analysis and a more correct analysis was taken up by the Fifth Circuit in that other case. And so um, I, I wait as a First Amendment lawyer for my entire career with bated breath to see how the Supreme Court um, draws those lines, which is going to in turn impact how we operate online going forward and whether we have a free country or not. I mean, just Absolutely. stepping back for a second, America, people don't know this, but America is unique around the world for our free speech regime. So-called democracies throughout the so-called free world don't have this. Um, people are arrested in the UK on a regular basis for misgendering or questioning other you know, social and cultural policies, which is in the name of so-called hate speech. In the country I was born in, India, the government tells Twitter that they can't show certain controversial speakers or viewpoints, full stop. If they do, Twitter officials in India will be arrested. So it is really only the United States where we have this government and constitutional framework of free speech. If we let it slide into the authoritarian area that other so-called democracies in the world have allowed to flourish there, and I named two of them just now, um, it's, it's, it's going to, I, I think, really set us into that 1984 Orwellian viewpoint that George Orwell foretold in his book, and it will not be free anymore. So a lot is at stake in this case and in the companion cases. And we sort of started sliding into the George Orwellian situation with the whole concept of uh, the kind of speech that is politically correct. And oh, uh, yes. wokeism and the whole thing, it's just accelerated the speed. And I think there's a tremendous danger for us, but it's been done in a sort of subtle way so that people don't really recognize what's happening. Uh, to that tremendous freedom. And we have so many people trying to get into our country. If it really were such a bad place, why would they all be trying to come here? doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And people, Absolutely. Have, people have to start paying attention to what their eyes and their ears tell them and not to what the mainstream media and the political figures tell them if America is to be saved. But do you feel that there is a clear-cut political agenda at Twitter or was? Oh, 100%. I mean, Twitter worked hand in fist with the government to suppress our speech about matters of the most important public interest, specifically our public health in the wake of a foreign introduced virus into our country. And in the case of the government's responses to that, and in the case of the voting rules that were concocted and pushed in the name of that very foreign it originated disease. Right. So, you know, any intelligent person would ask questions about these things because, first of all, this the basic public health history and science didn't support what the government was doing. Common sense didn't support it. It was at odds with our civil rights to prevent parents from determining how to educate their children, from, from preventing me as a citizen from crossing county lines. That was one of the dictates of, mm -hmm. of, uh, of our government that unless you had an essential purpose, you could not cross the county lines in California during a period of time. Completely outrageous. In Hawaii, people who own property there couldn't visit their property. They couldn't go from island to island in the name of public health. Complete nonsense. And then most importantly, our election laws have been permanently changed in many states for no reason, no good reason, because of this thing. So we should have been able to ask questions about it. We should have been able to debate it. We should have been able to go to court and sue over it. Mm -hmm. and win our ability to talk about it because, you know, when you go a little deeper, people would mockingly say to me, well, you have a right to speak, but you don't have a right to be heard. If you don't have a right to be heard in the public square, which is social media companies, at a time when you can't go to a public square and the only place you could talk is on social media, then that right to free speech is a nullity. It is a factual and illegal nullity. And so I'm, I'm grateful for Elon Musk opening things up. I still think things are being censored on Twitter. And he you know, continues to mention firing people from time to time. Around the world, Twitter still does have to censor based on mandates around the world. 
And uh, we are not free. We are not a free country mm -hmm. right now. We are not free to say and think our minds. And I mean, I want to push back a little bit on something you said that, you know, you know, sort of how how this new thing is being pushed. The left is openly and has been for decades pushing this wokeism on our college campuses. That is where that viral disease began. And I saw it in college when I was in college at Dartmouth College in the 1980s. I took on my campus administration over censorship attempts there against my newspaper, the Dartmouth Review. And But to this day, we now see, um, I have a, a client, Chloe Cole, very a brave young woman who is uh, known as one of the most advocates, most aggressive advocates for not allowing child mutilation in the name of transgender wokeism around the country. Well, when she goes to speak on college campuses, college administrators have, in the, in the case of one recent incident, three days worth of counseling, pre-indoctrination pre available to students who are feeling threatened by the fact that any young woman, not even 20 years old in the United States, is coming to speak on their campus. Mm. That is the level of mind messing that our universities are doing. So American parents are paying for their children to be taught that you need to be protected from speech by a 19-year-old in advance of it. You cannot trust your own mind to make intelligent distinctions. This is what we are signing up for in America. Absolutely. Why do you think Twitter banned President Trump? Oh, of course, because he was himself a viral, uh, you know, contagion of uh, countercultural input, sometimes profane, sometimes, uh, you know, very provocative, but always going against the grain of the establishment in DC and around mm -hmm. the country. And so, you know, I, I'm frankly surprised they let him speak for as long as they did, but that is why they banned him. He was, he was a dangerous voice. I That's was on a list, surprised I wasn't banned, but I'm pretty sure I was shadow banned. You probably were too, Dr. Carson. I <laughs> and I think we're gonna find that thousands of people were. So far, there has been no ind individual recourse. The mm. Supreme Court can change that and fix it with this upcoming case. Well, isn't uh, government use of private sector to control the population and to do what it can't do legally itself, isn't that a part of fascism? Of course it is. And and it is, it is only fascists who seek to suppress alternative viewpoints. They cannot tolerate them. And, you know, I, I frankly even see some of my conservative friends tend that way as well. Look, I mean, the if you truly believe in free speech, the antidote to speech that you don't like is more speech. It isn't firing people and shutting them down and making sure they don't have a platform or lose their position at a university. I mean, I had professors at Dartmouth who were pushing Marxism and liberation theology during the 1980s. And hey, luckily I had other professors and friends who had different viewpoints. We talked about them and at the end of the day, I didn't turn into a Marxist from being exposed to want. But I'm not so sure the same outcome would occur today when if you were suppressing the speech of the critic and only allowing the one Marxist viewpoint to flourish, students will never learn about the other side of the story and the equation. And so voices are shouted down. We have political violence in our country that we never had when I was growing up. Um, you know, we, we had riots, violent riots in 2016 around the President Trump's candidacy and election. I was caught up in one of these riots in San Jose. We had BLM riots. So today we have, of course, you know, the spectacle of these Palestinian and Hamas rallies happening all over the country. Mm -hmm. And so we have political violence in response to speech that some people don't like. That's very dangerous and that's, that's a part of fascism as well. Well, we're going to be back in one minute with uh, Harmeet Dillon to find out a little bit about the disinformation boards and, and why the mainstream media played down the Twitter files. Stay with us. We'll be back in one minute. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back with more Common Sense with our our guest, Harmeet Dillon. Uh, Fascinating discussion about your freedoms freedom of speech, something that we hold so precious in this country, but which is disappearing without many people actually being aware of it. It's so important that we begin to discuss these things among ourselves and all of our circles of influence. Uh, Harmeet, uh, I wanted to ask you, why, why do you think that the mainstream media is so hands-off on the whole Twitter files thing? It's just kind of not wanting to talk about it. Well, the mainstream media today, I would say that the mainstream media today are these university educated intellectuals, pseudo intellectuals who think they are better than the great unwashed deplorables out there in mainstream America. And so they actually buy into and believe this fascism. Um, If you turned on most of the TV networks in the United States over the last few years, you would really hear the same viewpoint on most of them. There was a period of time where, you know, there were a couple of exceptions to that. Uh, and, you know, today I'm sure there's a little bit less of that. There's a very uh, homogeneous viewpoint about the 2020 election, about the vaccines, about you name the issue, there's some mainstream viewpoint about it. And what we have evolved as a society is those gatekeeper intellectuals have slowly, completely lost any respect for the First Amendment and other constitutional norms. They simply don't think they should apply to their enemies or their intellectual inferiors. And they use their bully pulpit of their um, radio waves, television waves, what have you, to mock and ridicule people with different viewpoints and also add their voices to support the repression of those alternative, in Mm -hmm. some cases, mainstream viewpoints. Um, And so that's what we have seen. And so it was with alarming rapidity that the social media companies, which um, in the case of Twitter, made up of, uh, you know, people from other countries, uh, like myself, where there is no robust First Amendment regime, there is no concept of your right to say what you think is superior to the government's discomfort. And so these people very easily towed the line in censorship. Other people who weren't born in foreign countries like Mark Zuckerberg, uh, he doesn't have that excuse. These people were, A, probably infected by the same mind virus of uh, the elites on the first part. We know that because, of course, Zuckerberg also contributed heavily to the corruption of our elections in 2020. But they are under threat of government action if they did not act. So that's a whole other topic, but uh, there, you know, I think the Communications Decency Act Section 230, which is the obscure American law that has been used to justify a lot of this censorship, yeah. I don't think it should be eliminated. I do think it should be tinkered with to get rid of some of the most terrible excesses that have allowed this anything goes and the censorship model of these companies. But the flip side of that is many people on the left, Elizabeth Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, you know, people in the Biden and Obama administrations, they wanted to have the power to force social media companies to censor viewpoints and put make it an affirmative duty mm-hmm. that they censor viewpoints that they did not agree with. And so if you're a social media company, you're caught in between wanting to do what one side is demanding, which is have free speech, and what the government is demanding, which is censor. And the problem is the government comes with police power. 
-hmm. So these are not just simply two equal but opposite viewpoints. The government is telling you in one ear, if you don't censor, we will take away your immunity from lawsuits by disaffected customers of yours. That's a very powerful threat. And so on the, with that gun to their heads, some of these censorship decisions were made with police power being the threat held over these companies. That should never have happened. That's very wrong. I would support those companies suing the government over that, that threat. But um, we have to sort all of this out. If the Supreme Court does recognize the right of American citizens to be able to be free of censorship by proxy from our government, that's going to be a game changer in our free speech online. Yeah, the whole thing is very reminiscent of the way that uh, Hitler used global his uh, communications guy to control everything. It's it's almost identical uh, type of situation. Now, what about the disinformation board, which was uh, part of DHS? I mean, what what happened to that? Well, CISA, I think, is what you're talking about. Um, I forget the acronym Center for something information. Et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so this it was basically a hub or a internal coordinating place in the government to receive censorship requests, um, put a stamp of pseudoscience around them. Uh, the pseudoscience that we saw uh, comes from our universities, and there's a so-called science of the spread of misinformation. Among the flavors that was used to give a veneer of credibility and uh, authenticity to these censorship requests was, that this disinformation is coming from abroad. So foreign powers are trying to manipulate uh, what we see. And that, there may be some truth to that, mm -hmm. but a lot of it wasn't true. A lot of it was just Americans disagreeing with the government. It wasn't Russia. Right. It wasn't China. Um, if anything, Americans were raising their voices and questioning viewpoints and lines that were being pushed by these foreign governments. And so in the name of, oh, you know, this is a national security threat and this is disinformation, not a misinformation, not just wrong information, but just disinformation is a word that's used to imply that there is a purposeful attempt to subvert democracy with fake information online. Right. And so that was used as the excuse to censor on a whole scale basis, thousands of loud Americans. And uh, that's, that's our government used police power to do that. Now, there was an injunction that was placed on the government uh, as a result of the lawsuit, and the judge in, in the case called the, the suppression of dissent similar to the Ministry of Truth in 1984, um, and said that it exclusively targeted conservative speech. What is, what is the status of the case at this point? Well, the case is pending in the United States Supreme Court right now, and I think we're in the briefing stage, and the case is going to be argued in the Supreme Court this term over the scope of that injunction uh, and the standards used by the court. So the injunction was first issued by the court, and then it went up to the Fifth Circuit, which amended it, and then it went up to the Supreme Court, so the government has challenged the injunction. And so the, the court's going to have the opportunity, what we call de novo, because it's on appeal on a legal issue, to redraw or accept those contours. And so what the court did below was there was like a whole host of alphabet agencies sued by the plaintiffs in this case. And the court made a distinction between those agencies and those threats that were accompanied by threats by the government to actually do something to these social media companies. So police power threats versus requests. My view as a First Amendment lawyer is anytime the government is knocking on your door and saying, it sure would be nice if you would X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, that is police power. Somebody shows up with a uniform and a badge at my door and a gun on his hip and asks me to do something. That's quite different than my neighbor, Bob, you know, upstairs asking me to do it. And so I think that, I hope that realpolitik is argued well and comprehended by the court. But, uh, you know, the full stop, the government has absolutely no business being in the censorship business by proxy or otherwise. I mean, there may be some very rare instances where I think it would be legitimate for the government to make a request, like involving a life or death situation or involving a national security issue. 
and that should be an appeal to the better nature of the owners uh, of these newspapers, outlets, radio stations, and now, of course, social media companies to do what's right. Yes. I think that's fair. Uh, but most of the time, censorship is wrong. The government is wrong to suppress alternative viewpoints. And we should be allowed as citizens to have as free and robust a marketplace of ideas and make up our own minds with the, with the benefit of more information, not less. Well, I'm certainly glad there are people like you out there. I don't know what would happen to us otherwise, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the Center for American Liberty and, and some of the kind of cases it's involved with? Absolutely. So Center for American Liberty was a dream of mine. I've been a lawyer for 30 years now. And in my career, what I found is that when I worked at big international law firms, those law firms were allowed to do all kinds of public interest litigation for free for liberals, for liberal causes. Mm -hmm. But when it came to this issue of the First Amendment, for example, or pro-life, like I fought against Planned Parenthood and National Abortion Federation, and now this important cause of protecting America's mainly girls, some boys from mutilation by unscrupulous doctors in the name of transgender ideology, there was nobody to step up for those people. And so I started the Center for American Liberty to allow lawyers in private practice to be able to take a case or two, as opposed to making it their whole career to do it, and donate some of their time or do it at a much lower rate than normal to be able to help these individuals. And so in our fairly four, short four plus years in existence, Center for American Liberty filed more lawsuits than any other organization in the United States to challenge gubernatorial overreach with COVID restrictions. We sued multiple governors. We won some of these cases at the Supreme Court involving religious liberties, three different cases, one of which has become a landmark, very widely cited case on the First Amendment religious liberty side. We have uh, and continue to fight for free speech on college campuses. We represented journalist Andy No in suing Antifa thugs who violently attacked him and tried to censor his free speech as a journalist. And we won um, both a settlement and some judgments in that case. And today with the transgender work that we're doing, we're also looking at election litigation issues and getting into those on a public interest, nonpartisan basis as well. And so mm. I would love to see, just like the left has a very well-funded uh, network of hundreds of nonprofits that do important, uh, but, but very left-wing work, um, we need the same on the right to be able to counter that and just ordinary citizens. So. We're a nonpartisan organization, and you come to me with a free speech issue or a speech about an issue about your rights being violated. Uh, it'll, we'll take a look if no one else is handling that issue. And so that's what we do at the Amen. Center for American Liberty, and it's www.libertycenter.org. And uh, people can donate to it, can they? www.libertycenter.org forward slash donate. And we rely on donations from the public to help hire lawyers who do some of the most important work in the United States. And so if people are watching this before the year end, it's a great time to get that tax deduction in. Absolutely, it's so key. And I'm so glad that you're dealing with the gender dysphoria issue because, you know, as a neuroscientist, I can tell you the, the human brain develops very rapidly, millions of neurons every day. And that continues even after birth. And the brain isn't fully developed until you're in your 20s, which is, of course, the reason that people have parents to protect them. So when you have people trying to do things without the knowledge of the parents, they're interrupting the natural design of humanity. And uh, we need somebody to protect that. And so on behalf of all those folks, I want to thank you and those working with you for doing this. And You've given us the, the website. I hope people will, will go there, will visit, will learn more about what you're doing. And please keep up the good work. I don't know what we'd do without you. Thank you, doctor. That means a lot to me. All righty. And I'll be back in one minute with my closing comment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. enjoy that conversation with Harmeet Dillon really brings home how important our freedom of speech is. You know, it was Benjamin Franklin writing uh, under the pen name of Silence Do Good, who said, whoever would overthrow the liberties of a nation must begin by subduing the freedom of speech. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, we have to really jealously guard that very precious freedom because almost all of our other freedoms are based on it in some way. And, you know, it means that you have to become active. You have to speak up for what you believe. You can't sit by quietly and just act like there's nothing going on. But for the prescription for the week, as the holiday season approaches, you know, a lot of people are struggling. Prices of food, prices of everything are significantly up. And uh, the food banks are having some problems staying stocked. So for your prescription for the week, there's a food bank around. Give them some food, some non-perishable foods or a donation. Or maybe uh, you don't have extra money or food, but you may have a few hours that you can donate to them as well. Let's think about those who are less fortunate than we are, and let's do something for them. And that's it for this week. And uh, remember, you can get your, uh, your podcasts at Apple Podcasts for free, by the way, Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you rate us, review us, tell others about us, because we are trying to make common sense common once again. With your help, we can do that. And remember the cornerstones, faith, liberty, community, and life. See you next week.